0: Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, a lead, the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on our website, womensdeclaration.com, where you'll find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 34,357 people from 160 countries and is supported by 486 organisations. We have over 100 volunteer activists, including 53 country contacts, but we would be really happy to have more volunteers to continue to promote this work of defending women's sex-based rights. So do join us if you can. Today, we have Sarah Fillimore from the UK, and her talk will be about big tech and the censoring of women. Then we're going to hear from Rona Dewey from Germany, the progress of male sexual rights movement in Germany. And then we will hear from Eliza Mondegreen from USA Stroke Canada. And the title of her talk is Down the Rabbit Hole, and she'll be interviewed by Zan Dalio about the WPATH conference research on gender affirming care and research on online community dynamics. And then we also have Shannon Thrace, um, a trans widow speaks out. She's from the USA. I'd like to introduce Sarah Fillimore. Now, Sarah, Sarah Fillimore, thank you so much for coming. Sarah is a family law barrister and she's a member of Fair Cop she's suing Eventbrite for unlawful discrimination after they refused to allow her book launch on their site, claiming that she had breached their community standards with regard to violent extremism. So um, thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on and talking to us and sharing what you found out and how you're campaigning and what you're doing about it. So over to you.
1: My job, since I found out what was happening in about 2018, which is shockingly late, I know, is to simply campaign as hard as I can for the right um, for all women to say that sex is real and it matters and that biological sex ought to be protected in law. So whether that's a feminist stance or not, that is my stance. So um, what I'm going to do is give you a run through about what happened with Eventbrite and what I hope is going to happen. So if what I say today is interesting to you, and you want to know more, then don't worry about taking notes or anything. Just check out my Substack. I think if you just Google Sarah Fillmore Substack, it'll come up. So for those of you who aren't aware what happened to me, I, together with Al Peters, started gathering um, women and men's stories about two years ago. We asked, how did you find yourself in the gender wars? What's your peak trans story? And we got a really lovely collection of stories. I mean, some really harrowing, some humorous. We put them together in a self-published book, which Al Peters is a very um, talented graphic designer. He made it look lovely. And we're selling it on Amazon if you're interested. I thought what would be nice is to have a book launch for our book. So I got the Conway Hall for the 2nd of December and I put a link to it on Twitter and nobody noticed. And we sold about 10 tickets. Um, I then made the mistake of announcing the speakers, who included Graham Linehan, Helen Staniland, and Maria McLaughlin. That got the attention of various activists on Twitter. And all it took, all it took was one tweet to say, Oi, Eventbrite, do you really want to be hosting this event? So Eventbrite then, on the 27th of October, sent me the following email. We are reaching out regarding your event listing, launch of transpositions, personal journeys into gender criticism. We have determined that your event is not permitted on the Eventbrite platform as it violates our community guidelines and terms of service, specifically our policy on hateful, capital H, dangerous, capital D, or violent content and events. As a result, your event has been unpublished. Please be aware that severe or repeated violations of our guidelines may result in the suspension or termination of your Eventbrite account. Please reply directly to this email if you have any further questions. Well, I had quite a lot of further questions and I sent many emails which were all ignored. Happily, the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mail, the critic thought this was an interesting story and I was asked to write an article for The Critic and then for Spiked. It seemed that one of their legal counsel based in California saw that article in The Critic and emailed me asking if we could have a chat over Zoom. I said, yes, please. I'm really disturbed with what you've done. There's nothing dangerous, hateful or violent about this event at all. And you're effectively smearing me, all the speakers and all those attending as hateful, violent bigots. So we had a chat. It was a masterclass in attempted psychological manipulation. I was told how knowledgeable I was, how intelligent I was, how deep my knowledge of these issues ran. And and they had so much to learn from me. I said that, that's nice. I asked if I could see the contents of the complaints that have been made against me. No, they they weren't going to do that. Um, They they would have an internal review and they would let me know if they would reverse their decision. So I said, well, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And I waited to hear. And of course the decision was, without any further explanation, context or detail, that no, the event was not going to be reinstated. Uh, What I found most chilling and interesting about that conversation was that the reason given for the pulling of the plug was a duty of care Eventbrite claimed to owe people attending my event. I was told there was a real risk that violent men would turn up and hurt somebody. Therefore, Eventbrite had a duty not to promote that, to keep everybody safe. I mean... If that actually was genuine, which I doubt, that's utterly appalling, because that is giving these men the very clear message that your campaign of violence and intimidation against women is working. And we will, rather than stand up to you, shut these women down. So that was really worrying. So I was definitely convinced I was going to take legal action against them. So I managed to get a solicitor. That was a pretty hard job. Nobody wanted to touch it. I was eventually very lucky to get the same solicitor who acted for Sonia Athelby in her action against the Tavistock. Now, his plan, which was very sensible, as it turned out, was not to launch straight in with a letter before action, but to make a data subject access request on my behalf of Eventbrite. And I got some of those key documents early this year. And I included um, some of the more interesting comments, again, in a Substack post. So if you're interested, do Google that and check it out. It is very illuminating about how these companies think. Um, What was really quite disturbing to me was just how much investigation they then went into about me once it was clear I was serious. And they're very excited to discover that Wiltshire Police had 12 pages of my tweets under the heading, A Barrister Posting Hate. Sadly, in their excitement, they forgot to do their research about what happened next. When Wiltshire had to concede, they'd acted unlawfully and paid my solicitors £12,000. But there we go. There's suddenly a great flurry of interest in me, calling me a Nazi and an an anti-Semite. So we've now got a letter before action that went. And the action we're proposing against Eventbrite is based on two key issues. The first is under the Equality Act, because Section 29 of the Equality Act provides a service provider must not discriminate against a person, B, requiring the service by not providing that person with the service, by termination of the provision of the service or by subjecting B to any other detriment such as harassment and victimization. So that's um, issue number one. And of course, for that, we're relying on full starter Miller, and also the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association against the Scottish Event Campus Limited, which was a case um, very recently where the venue had to pay out a considerable sum of money for cancelling a meeting of evangelical Christians who had committed to the view that homosexuality was a sin. Now, that may well be extremely offensive to many, but it's a view they're entitled to hold, as the Scottish Event Campus found out. Also, my solicitors are arguing for breach of contract on the basis that paragraph 27.2 of the Eventbrite Terms of Service allows a party to refuse to accept to be bound by the law of the state of Delaware in the United States. That's where Eventbrite says anything against them must be litigated. And I think they insist on arbitration. We're saying we've opted out of that. And the law governing this contract is English law. We're therefore going to argue that any definition of fear, hate or prejudice that you applied to my book launch was so broad as to be entirely meaningless, thus making the contract void for uncertainty. Now, what's really interesting is Eventbrite replied and said, well, we we don't accept we're bound by English law at all. Well, okay, fair enough. You'd think that might be the end of it. But no, they've asked until the 24th of February to undertake a detailed reply so that I can understand their position about this very complex issue. Now, I think that's really interesting because that to me suggests they don't have much faith in their argument that they're not bound by English law. And also, I don't think it is complex at all. What's happened here is that a foreign multinational country, has imposed its own community standards on a UK citizen in defiance of UK domestic laws. There is a clear breach of the Equality Act here, that my event was removed because it promoted violent or hateful content. It didn't. It was about people discussing their protected belief that sex is real and it matters. And also remember that Eventbrite include in its definition of hate disparagement, which is incredibly broad and subjective. I'm sure I disparage people every waking moment of my life, and I'm unaware I'm doing it because they subjectively have taken offence at something I've said. So I I think I've got a strong case, and I think it's something that really needs flushing out. So you know, why is this important? You might say, well, come on, Sarah, your your book launch went ahead; it sold out. You know what was the problem? You just had to carry around a, a, a bit of cash in a Tupperware box because you couldn't get the money dealt with online. Yeah, that, that's true. On that perspective, nothing really major happened. My event went ahead; it was a great night. We sold loads of books. Everyone had a good time. But it's the wider perspective which is really concerning. Platforms such as Eventbrite um, claim to be operating. Um, to the public good. They relied on breach of their own community standards to remove my event. However, Eventbrite is creating and enforcing these standards with no public consultation and no public scrutiny. The boundaries between laws created by our parliament and efforts to impose a private organization's own moral code on the wider public is becoming hopelessly blurred. And this has serious implications for the health of our actual democracy. I'm not being alarmist here. We elect politicians who pass laws with a supposed democratic mandate. If a private company can just slide in and undercut those laws whenever it feels like, then that is an end to democracy. I also think my case shows the dangers of political purity and we've had a rather unpleasant example of that on twitter i think yesterday where i saw maya forstarter being criticized for not being hundred percent compliant with the views of certain women who donated money to her they felt that they were owed something because they'd given her money i was very disappointed to see that because really Without Maya's judgment, I wonder whether we would actually be able to gather here and now and speak in this way. Remember that we had um, the state telling us that we were not worthy of respect in a democratic society, that we were on a par with the Nazis. So I think we all owe Maya Forstarter an incredible debt of gratitude. And if you donated 20 pounds to her crowdfunder, then you got a very good deal. Our fundamental freedom secured for a small amount of money. But remember, Eventbrite also did this to, I think, three events organised by Women's Place UK. There was a book launch for Karen Ingala-Smith, and there was a showing of the adult human female documentary. And Women's Place UK issued a statement at the time saying they're a grassroots feminist organisation and they wouldn't be contemplating legal action. Now, that's absolutely fair enough. I fully understand the emotional and financial consequences of lawfare because I've been involved in it now for about three years. These are considerable consequences. They are not to be undertaken lightly and this is not the weapon of choice for everyone. But I do think it's a mistake to back away from this fight. The disclosure I got under my data subject access request showed me exactly what Eventbrite thinks of women who say that you cannot change sex. And remember, Eventbrite could be any one of these American companies, any one of them. They are all exactly the same. So Eventbrite is just a cipher, as far as I can see, for all of big tech. Eventbrite didn't care if I was allied with the right wing or allied with the left wing. Didn't care if I'd read any academic feminist theory it tarred everybody with the same brush. They sent me a redacted email. I assume that they were talking about WPUK in that email because it was around the time that they pulled those events. And they said, well, we think the people organizing this event are a bit more buttoned up than Sarah Fillimore. Fair comment. Um, I'm sure most people are more buttoned up than me, but that the events were essentially the same in that they both promoted trans denialism slash exclusion. So, this is the problem for all of us. It really doesn't matter where our allegiances are. The moment you demonstrate less than 100% compliance with the idea that a man can become a woman anytime he feels like it on his simple assertion, you will be swept into the dustbin of hateful, violent, dangerous content by these companies. So this, I think, is the beating heart of what is going so very wrong. It doesn't matter how prettily we dress it up or if we're talking about compassion for trans people. If you think biological sex is real, then you are going to be denied goods and services by companies which are effective monopolies in really important areas i mean look what happened to the free speech union and paypal i mean happily that was reversed but these american companies control really significant services what is the alternative to twitter or facebook or linkedin or paypal there's There's not really real competition. They're monoliths. And if you find yourself excluded from these services, that could be at an enormous cost to the individual. So this is a breach, I say, of not just my right not to be discriminated against. It's a breach of my Article 10 rights protected by the European Convention. And another reason I'm really upset about these decisions is that they form a vicious cycle of legitimization for yet more discrimination. I was really shocked about a um, couple of weeks before the event to get a telephone call from the chief executive officer of the Conway Hall itself. That was the venue for our event. He didn't want to cancel it, but he told me he'd been getting a lot of complaints and he didn't want me to mention the venue on social media. So I complied with a heavy heart. I was very grateful that the Conway Hall did not pull the event because then I would have had to have sued them as well. And I didn't want to do that. They have a proud history. And I know have hosted very many events which are supportive of women and women's rights. But it was clear that Conway Hall were being beaten with this stick. That if Eventbrite thinks it's so awful, why the hell are you allowing it to go ahead? So for all these reasons, we have to fight this. It's really important. This is not just me having a spat. This has implications for everybody who finds themselves outside the community standards of these private companies. So I think this involves really big and serious questions that transcend political or ideological affiliations. If you agree with me, please do consider supporting my action. I know money is really tight for everyone right now. So if you don't want to donate, you can't afford to, or you just, you don't approve of lawfare, then please just talk to people about what I've told you this afternoon. I I think it's so important. Um, As I end, I'm going to share with you one review of the Transpositions book on Amazon. Now you can go and Download the book, hopefully it will work on your Kindle, there's a few problems with the PDF, for £3, so you can make up your own mind about this. I don't accept for one moment that the men and women who shared their stories with me and Al are hateful or part of a cult. But this particular person who provided this review is a very clear example of the kind of man that Eventbrite and all the other companies are empowering and enabling. And this is what he said. This book works as a great catalogue of a time when certain people took leave of their critical faculties and decided that a small marginal section of society were to blame for the problems of a traumatised generation in an increasingly insecure era. It works as a study in the pathology of hate, and how easy it can be to manufacture tensions and manipulate frightened people into cult-like behaviours. I recommend this to any student of sociology and or psychology. Sarah Fillimore has accidentally compiled her own body of evidence against herself, and those she has exploited for this dossier of paranoid fantasies, they are right to remain anonymous. See, what These men are not without intelligence. And what they've done is they've learned and they've parroted the language of the oppressed. And they have so very cleverly insinuated themselves into almost every organization, public and private, with this story of being the most oppressed. It's been very cleverly done, I have to hand it to them. What we're dealing with is an ideology of gender identity that defies reality, and rationality, and which fundamentally at its core really hates women. So I think it's vital that we're able to put aside our political differences, dial down on expectations of purity and fight this before it really is too late. If Maya hadn't stood the course, would we be able to talk freely now? I have my doubts. So thank you very much for listening. If you can afford a Fiverr, I would be very grateful. If you can't, please just talk, disseminate, discuss. Uh, and this will, this will happen to other people. And um, so, so be ready. And as I said, I will put the text of this talk and a number of links to my crowdfunder, some articles and some case law on my substack on Sunday night. So if anything I've said has piqued your interest and you want to know more, then you can have a read of that. But thank you very much for inviting me and thank you very much for listening.
0: Is Fair Cop doing uh, many actions at the moment or are they things on a back burner? Because they were very active or you have been very active with Faircop.
1: I think that the most recent big case was Darren Brady. That was a very interesting case where both he and Harry um, were unlawfully arrested And that all fizzled out because the police um, didn't pursue it. We're still waiting, however, for the revised guidance on hate crime. Still, even though Harry won his action in December 2021. So, yeah, things are a little bit on the back burner because the College of Policing are just dodging the issue by not revising the guidance. So we're all in limbo. What are we allowed to say? And this is, I mean, the case of um, Posey Parker, Kelly J. Keen being arrested over the Brighton event is huge. So I'm, I really, it's going to be so interesting to see what happens next. And I hope Fair Cop can do whatever it can to help. I mean, we need to see what she's been charged with for a start, but if it's anything like what was recorded against me, I'll just share with you my favourite thing on the 12 pages of police tweets was a picture of my dog looking cute. And above it, I would said, my dog would call me a Nazi for cheese. That was recorded on a police database as hatred towards a transgender individual. I am not joking. This is the absurdity, the stupidity, the terrifying risibility of all of this. And it is terrifying because Kelly J Keane's being told you either submit to an interview or you're coming in handcuffs. For what? for saying that women don't have penises. Well, I'm hoping to be outside Trowbridge police station with a bloody big banner and let's see if they arrest us. Apparently they haven't got any cells at Trowbridge. They've got a couple in Melksham. So if we get 20 women to turn up and get arrested, they've got a problem. I mean, I'm laughing because it, it is on one level so funny, but on another, it's not. You know, we could all end up in the cells for saying women don't have penises and transition of children is abuse, which I will stand by and I will say in public until I die because it's true
0: so we're going to move on now so Rona Douwe is from Germany she is a later doctor in feminism but burning for it she's a graphic designer (laughs) poet author blogger activist does web project projects against violence against women single mothers History of Patriarchy, and she's a fellow woman of Lassen, Frau, and Sprechen, Germany. Um, And she's going to talk about the progress of male sexual rights movement in Germany. So thank you so much, Rona, for coming on, and over to you.
2: I want to talk about the German government using Holocaust Remembrance Day for queer propaganda, which is a new peak in Germany and about companies influencing sexual education in German schools. I will see if I can talk about the second subject, because the first one is a bit long. So uh, we can say that no debate is over in Germany. Um, this was a success of some women who fought against self id in Germany for almost three years now and were able to mobilize more and more women every day. Red Fem Berlin did the biggest feminist demonstration yet with uh, Sheila Jeffreys in 2022 and other international feminists in Berlin and is going on with demonstrating every month. Lass Frauen sprechen, Geschlecht zählt, and, and other groups are constantly writing letters and statements and publish, publish info matri- material. LFS organizes actions and demonstrations, next one on the 4th of March in Munich. And a big secret feminist conference was held in Berlin at the end of last year with, the, with experienced feminists of the second wave and also prominent feminists like Julia Long, um, prominent international feminists who supported us. And we have a growing number of women opposing gender identity ideology who have appearances in media and press. So as resistance of women is getting stronger every day, our queer officer Sven Lehmann has to strengthen efforts A side note that Lehmann has a budget of uh, 70 million euro to promote the acceptance of queer lifestyle, which has culminated in an action plan, queer living of the German government. Um, Eva Engelken talked about it last week. This action plan has the whole queer program in it, um, for example, change of family and parentage laws reproductive rights, stealth surrogacy, forthing, forcing gender identity ideology on children via education, criminalized parents who, who oppose um, transitioning of their children, and so on. Last Frauen sprechen and WDI Germany wrote and published extended feminist statements against this action plan, adding a special issue concerning lesbian mothers because lesbians protested our statement. We also applied to take part on the consultation with lobby groups, which is part of this action plan, but uh, we would think they will uh, surely reject us. So we observe that they spread their efforts now as no debate around German self-ID hasn't really worked Uh, They somehow reduce self-ID demands or lie about it and strengthen other proposed regulations and legislations. And they use uh, defamation campaigns against TERFs in German public media, for example, calling them TERFs, load of shit in a late night program. And uh, this late night uh, program normally criticizes um, the politics in Germany. But um, in this program, um, they made propaganda for the German gender identity politics. And so our family and women's minister and our queer officer were very happy about it. (laughs) And our women's minister called us reactionary and inhuman persons who objected. So you see uh, the woman hatred is getting stronger every day and is supported by the German government. Then they installed denunciation offices. Um, they call it uh, reporting offices for anti-feminism, one of them at the Amadeo Antonio Foundation, which was founded for anti-Semitism, And anti-feminism means for them stickering against gender identity ideology, informing about the trans lobby, talking about the mutilation and abuse of children, in conclusion, opposing queer propaganda and fighting prostitution. So you see it uh, it, on this banner, this is a sex work banner. And so we expect that radical feminists and gender critical women will be denunciated en masse by trans activists as they love to attack us and block us on social media and so on. One woman said, uh, there is a new Stasi uh, being installed in Germany. So I make a throwback on summer 2022, where the German trans lobby started the initiative Trans Media Watch to control German media. This came shortly after feminist and gender critical voices started to reach the point of really being heard via big media outlets. Uh, For example, a group of scientists criticized the public broadcasting in Germany spreading gender identity ideology and false information about about human biology. And these uh, scientists focused especially on indoctrination towards children and children's and teens uh, programs. And so these trans lobby guys said increasingly media articles are published that talk about trans as a trend about supposedly unsafe women's spaces, about so-called trans ideology, or about girls who don't want to be girls. So to say it clear, they aim to hinder freedom of press and critical media coverage of gender identity ideology or hearing the voices of feminists in the heart of Germany. Uh, The second action this transmedia watch was doing was attacking feminists. Um, Shortly afterwards, they focused on a defamation campaign against young PhD of biology, Marie-Louise Vollbrecht, who already talked here in WDI Feminist Question Time. Um, And uh, German media and German trans lobby started a big harassment campaign against her, which has lasted until this day. Marie Louise was framed as head of a group of aggressive right wing TERFs who attack a trans academic and his family violently, which is not proved till now. And in a Twitter discussion, they declared that she denies N.S. crimes as she opposed the statement that trans people were victims of Holocaust. Um, Transmedia watched spread a hashtag then defaming Marie louise as a denier of Nazi crimes. She sued them then as um, Uh, Sued the trans lobby group DGTI and won the first case. Imagine that the DGTI took her to court and uh, again on 9th of November, which is Reichskristallnacht and won. So they are allowed now to call her a denier of Nazi crimes. Um, And Marie-Louise will now go to appeal again as German media doesn't stop to harass her and damage her reputation, calling her not only denier of Nazi crimes, but denier of Holocaust. The hashtag is still used by trans activists on demonstrations and spread by German politicians and media TRAs. As you see, Georgine Kellermann is head of public broadcaster WDR in Essen, and Andrea Poyla-Kampe is one of the Queer Greens. Um, So then was Holocaust Remembrance Day this year and uh, in Germany Holocaust Remembrance Day on the 27th of January is called Remembrance of the Victims of Nazi Crimes. Every year Germany focuses on a special victim group of Nazi crimes. This year they commemorated the queer victims of Nazi crimes. There was a discussion beforehand, as, a, as some people emphasized, that most of the victims were homosexual males and that queer is a term that wasn't known. As we know, trans activists love to use the term genocide or Nazi crime if they are confronted with the reality of being a man by feminists or with a simple no by women. So German government gave a big gift to all these activists framing the homosexual victims of Nazi crimes as queer on International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Especially our anti-discrimination officer, let that sink in, uh, Ferda Attermann made a really big gift. She published a press release on 26th of January in which she forgot to mention the mass murder of Jews. Instead, she promoted to change the German constitution as homosexuals are the last victim group of Nazi crimes who are not protected by German constitution but she doesn't demand protecting sexual orientation, but sexual identity. So this can mean anything from homosexual to pedophile or paraphilias. The greens and pedophiles in Germany have already tried to protect sexual identity in constitution in 2010, but failed. Now they try again and have the argument to protect a group that was persecuted by Nazis. The reverse conclusion, everybody opposing gender identity legislation is a denier of Nazi crimes now, certified by German government. Uh, Also during the memorial in German Bundestag, they used queer propaganda vocabulary. You can imagine how the shitstorm was flaming as I wrote a subsequent article against this horrific development in Germany, especially homosexual males were, were very aggressive. Uh, for example, a gay sadomaster who doxxed me and Mr. Georgine Kellermann again, who told that it was a lie what I was saying. Um, and yesterday I was locked out of out of Twitter because I confronted the CEO of um, Christopher Street Day, Germany with pedos on Pride Cologne and a banner of Turfs, Turfs Can Suck My Huge Strand Sticks on CSD Dresden 20, um, 2022 So the, since Holocaust Remembrance Day, this guy has a crush on me, attacking me as a bitter woman doing podcasts, podcasts with docked lesbians. So I think I'm very close to a reality he wants to hide. And he um, blocked me today on the account of um, Christopher Street Day Germany. So, um, and you can see above here, they say this woman would have been a good supervisor, me would have been a good supervisor back then in the Nazi times without betting an eye. All those who did not conform to her heteronormative world would have been put in the gas chamber or they tell call me an, a feminine Nazi or a fascist and so on. So as expected, during the following week, news were released that five conservative politicians of CDU, which is the conservative party in Germany, support the change of the constitution. Reason, they tell, uh, the last group of people who were persecuted by Nazis, homosexuals, shall finally get protected by law via sexual identity. CDU has already had already opposed this legislation 2010. Several legal specialists and feminists stressed that sexual identity is a totally unclear term and could be used to protect paraphilias and pedocriminals. They already convinced five conservative politicians, some of them very well known in Germany, and they will need 36 uh, CDU politicians to enforce the amendment. So we are fighting against this, writing letters and talking to them. Uh, We are also observing that the pedo-activists in Germany are strengthening their efforts. They demonstrated on Pride March in Cologne 2022, while lesbians were violently attacked on the Dyke March. A growing number of people on social media seem to think that the strong drive to abuse a child is an unfortunate innate disposition or even sexual orientation. And they also fight for the change of the constitution to get sexual identity in. They have a petition running and they are organizing on a European level to promote themselves in the EU parliament as a persecuted minority. So I have seven minutes left and I talk about the next subject. This was a big small win. It is about gender identity ideology material in German schools provided by brands of US American major corporations. Uh, We had a daughter of a feminist friend who brought sheets home where gender identity ideology and its uh, vocabulary is promoted. The material is for the biology class or sexual education for children in the sixth grade as young as 11. On one sheet, it says that a girl wishes to finally get a surgery to become a boy. I translated it over there. On another sheet, they are explaining that men can be lesbians. They also promote terms like cis, demigender, or asexual. As the friend was talking to parents of other children of this class, they said, nobody understands what all these terms means, uh, but uh, we don't care about it. The parents are not really uh, irritated about uh, these sheets. We researched where this material comes from and found out that there is a whole puberty topic portal provided by Always on the online platform Lehrer Online, Teacher Online. Here teachers can download material for their classes. Always is a brand for menstrual products and belongs to the American corporation Procter & Gamble. Procter and Gamble did a whole campaign for menstrual products of Tampax and Always with males in USA. They also promote with females on testosterone and amputated breasts for their shaving brands Gillette and Brown in USA and Germany. Jennifer Bielek analyzed that they advanced towards the promising and profitable trans market and don't mind to throw their female customers under the bus for their image as a trans-sensitive company catering the medical industrial complex. They also invested in pharmaceuticals and completed an acquisition of Merck's Consumer Health Unit, business worth $3.8 billion. So you see, this is a great market, and this market is going in German schools. We were in this case successful in fighting this publication, a small win of always, as we worked with one of the biggest conservative tabloids in Germany, the Bild-Zeitung, that even mentioned us as women's rights activists. So this is something new. Uh, they published an article about it on their online and print issue, and a video by another newspaper followed. It was also covered by television, and we generated so much media pressure that always silently withdrew the whole publication. Uh, we are international feminists. We found out that always also tried this in USA and Canada. In Canada, the material seems to be worse. In USA, they seem to be successful in fighting it. So as always still has its puberty channel on Lehrer Online. I checked if they still offer similar material. I didn't find it on that channel, but discovered material from the lotion brand Dorf. Dorf is also promoting gender identity ideology for minor students with another publication called Proud to be Me. So you see, this is the whole uh, program of gender identity ideology, talking about gender dysphoria, about uh, gender, uh, sex is not binary, sex is a spectrum, and you have to be kind to men who say they are trans and so on. Dove is a brand of Unilever, so I checked the diversity standards of Unilever. And diving about 10 minutes in, I found out that they offer a relationship portal about different forms of relationships and sexuality via via their brand close up. I put the term minor attracted person in the search field and bingo, found a lot of articles about relationships between people with a high age difference and how to tell your parents or not tell your parents and I looked closer and found out they have a whole topic about age gap, normalizing relationships to much older men. So uh, we have a lot of work to do. Um, I only touched the surface. I think it was, it's a, a very lot of material um, and we are all researching and doing as some women show in Germany. Um, it is a lot of work to do and we try to cooperate internationally now. Uh, we have to clean all the garbage of the international male sexual rights movement. I was unlocked on Twitter yesterday again. And uh, while I was writing this presentation, confronted this uh, Christopher Street Day guy again. And uh, he blocks me now. So for now, thank you. Furious women will fight this, I think. And we'll win this.
0: We're now going to go to Elisa Montegreen from USA Stroke Canada. She is going to she's a graduate student and she's going to be with Zan, who is going to be um, also discussing with her. So she's going to be in conversation with Zan. Thank you very much, Zan. And so um, Elisa is a graduate student researching online trans and detrans communities. And the title of her talk is Down the Rabbit Hole. So without further ado, I'll pass you over to Zan and Elisa. So my first
3: question is, yeah, so you're a graduate student and um, studying this gender identity thing from every angle. So like, what was your impetus or do you have research questions or a thesis or yeah, how did you sort of get in and?
4: So I had worked in the nonprofit sector at a think tank for a number of years and had watched um, friends of mine and also just the work that I was doing being increasingly kind of pulled into the orbit of gender identity. And I had a lot of questions um, and just spent several years just writing long Google documents with like all of my questions and all of the material that I could pull out. And to actually uh, do a, a thesis, you really have to narrow down. And the question that I decided that was, I was maybe best equipped to address and that was maybe the most neglected in the research was around the role of online trans communities and how they shape the attitudes and beliefs and knowledge that young people have about gender and how they shape intentions and expectations for transition or detransition. And so um, I focused on Reddit communities. I focused on females, members of these communities. Um, One of the problems with other research, including the very limited research on internet communities, was that they wouldn't distinguish between, you know, are the the people involved male or female? And of course there are a lot of reasons to think that males and females have very different paths into and out of trans identity. Um, And what I study is after spending a couple of years on these communities, it was like, I think that the most interesting place is to see how people are socialized into these communities, how they adopt the beliefs, how they come to, certainty or at least a strong feeling that they should transition was to look at how questions and doubts are dealt with in the community. And the short answer to that is that questions and doubts come out all the time, but they almost never come up unpackaged. So they will be kind of wrapped up in this other language where you'll say like, you know, I really, I really feel like my internalized transphobia is coming out here because I feel really nervous about like the surgery that's coming up or I have really mixed feelings about changing my legal documents or I I feel like I have like an imposter syndrome because I don't feel like a man or I don't feel like I'm really trans and I might feel like I might be faking it um, or they'll talk about having <laughs> turf thoughts or exposing themselves to digital self-harm by reading gender critical content online and then that it triggers these feelings of doubt about what they're doing and basically the effect of packaging your own questions and doubts in this way is that you say up front like this really isn't important and like I need the community to like help me put this down and that's exactly what happens yeah so that has been um just the focus of my my thesis and we'll see if I I haven't decided if I want to continue and and do a PhD but um, it would definitely
3: be in the same vein. You know, you, uh, let me, let me hook here. You had um, um, a, you did a, um, an unheard piece. Um, it was with the title of why lesbians um, should have, uh, why should lesbians have sex with men that it's now bigoted to be attracted to female only bodies. And in that article, you mentioned a survey that you did mm-hmm. Um, uh, called unspeakable LGBTQ, um, where you asked the question, um, "What do you wish you could say about your experiences as women, as a woman in the LGBTQ community?" So, could you talk about the refer- uh, talk about those surveys responses? Sure, and I just, I should make it clear, this was
4: before I was a graduate student. So this wasn't academic research. This was just, um, I was working with two friends, one of whom had detransitioned and one had desisted. And we really just wanted to kind of create a space where women in the LGBT community could talk about, you know, what was going on, how they were, what they were experiencing. Um, So we created that in the summer of 2021 and got hundreds and hundreds of responses and they were really like, there were comparisons between participation in, you know, LGBT communities now to like growing up in an oppressive religion, like Mormonism. Um, there were women who were talking about like being pushed back into the closet or being pressured to accept male sex partners or being constantly bothered about, you know, pronouns and how they identify because they were gender non-conforming. Um, they talked about the lot older women would talk about like the loss of spaces so like bookstores and bars and clubs where they would go to and even you know picnics and mishfests and all of these events that had been such an important formative experience for them and younger women would talk about how they that these were almost like mythical spaces for them because they had never existed in the lives of younger women um and there were just a couple of quotes that I just wanted to mention from from what women wrote in. Uh, one woman said, we're allowed to have no leadership positions without the permission or surveillance of men, even in our own organizations. I was excited to join LGBT spaces spaces and meet people like me. But it wasn't like that. I left one cult and I found that what awaited me was another. In LGBT and other progressive circles, women don't have the right to assemble without the presence of men, who by nature of being male have no ability to relate to the experiences of women. Just like my old religion, you aren't allowed to question the ideology. In this case, it's transgenderism, without being ostracized. And just like my old religion, men's feelings and sensibilities must be taken into account in everything that women do. Um, And another, a couple of women wrote about having Either desisted or detransitioned from trans identities. And, you know, that they had one woman said, you know, she spent years running from being a butch lesbian and that she said she had transitioned in order to escape the shame and the fear that she had. And she says, when I finally came to terms with the fact that transition had not really helped and I was still the same me, I detransitioned. I wanted community more than anything then. But there isn't a place for me anymore. Before I transitioned, there were several lesbian groups in my area, but they don't exist anymore. As far as I can tell, there's no lesbian space or group anywhere in the city. I can't express how painful it is not to have a place to belong. And a young woman who desisted said that the problem with leaving the trans cult as a lesbian is that you can never really leave because the ideology is in every LGBT space, every LGBT charity. It's on every dating site.
3: It's on the front page of every news site, every day. You attended to this recent uh, WPATH conference, Undercover, you said. Mm -hmm. So what was that about? Tell us about that. Sure. So the World Professional Association for Transgender Health
4: uh, came to my city late last year. Um, As you can imagine, it was pretty hard to resist going to see what was going on. As somebody who's been researching um, what they call gender affirming care for several years. And I would have to say it's very different to, you know, I had read dozens and dozens of research articles and listened to interviews and taken hundreds and hundreds of pages of notes on this belief system that is infecting medical practice. And it is a completely different experience to actually go and be surrounded by people who are true believers or um, sure willing to act like it if they have maybe more opportunistic motives. And I think that it really is a mix between opportunists and between people who have an almost religious attachment to the ideology. Uh, So something that I've, this is something I've talked about a few places, and I've talked about kind of the wilder parts, like there were sessions about people who claim to have multiple personalities and how you can transition a person who has too many personalities for the therapist to interview about their transition goals. And I also, I've talked about the Unix session before. So what I really wanted to just mention today was kind of the more mundane talks and how those were in a way, even more disturbing, even though they were much less flashy. So there were a lot of sessions about issues like uh, assessment, mental health assessment for adolescents with mental health comorbidities. And it was interesting because the conference had imposed the title that included assessment on the presenters and the presenters were unable to speak about what they did without putting assessment in, you know, these very ironic, heavy air quotes. And so they would talk about kids coming in and having autism and everyone would say, well, you should like assess them and you should take more time. And they would talk about kids who had pretty serious um, comorbidities, even up to um, psychosis. And they would be like, you know, hopefully, you know, patients aren't actively psychotic. Ideally patients aren't actively psychotic is what they said. But that, of course, the psychotic patient can consent to take high blood pressure medication or can consent to take stool softeners. So, why would testosterone be any different? Um, And they also, there was a session from the Dutch clinicians who were talking about some longitudinal research that I don't believe has been published yet, but they were presenting. And it was like, okay, for these patients who we transitioned as teenagers in the 2010s and they're now in their 30s, Um, have have their gender identities changed over time? Has their sexual orientation changed over time? And how do they feel about questions of fertility? Because all of the kids who went on this protocol, they were puberty blocked and then they were given cross-sex hormones. And so the effect is that they have been sterilized, that they cannot have biological children. And they're reporting these very concerning results that, it was something like 40% felt like it was, you know, it was problematic. Or I think the word, the translation that they used was that it was troublesome, that they had lost their fertility. And there were participants who expressed that they just hadn't been old enough when they were 11 or 12, when they started down this path to consent, to give away their future in that way. And a few minutes later, the presenter will be you know, she'll be joking about how she really doesn't like to do prediction, and she can't predict how she'll feel in the future. And she says, I can predict how I'll feel, you know, five minutes from now, which is, you know, I'll still be nervous, and everybody laughs. And she's like, but I can't predict how I'll feel tomorrow. And so you have these people who have this tremendous responsibility as medical providers working with young people, and they are making jokes out of the impossibility of predicting their own desires tomorrow. And they're kind of hand-waving this data that shows that there's a lot of regret about fertility. Um, They packaged the data about kind of changes in gender identity in such a way that there were no numbers on detransition. So they talked about, you know, they put all in one group, people who detransitioned and people who maybe identified as non-binary or an elf or a fairy or a friendly non-threatening woman, like that these were all the same kind of thing. So that they couldn't say, oh, we had X patients detransition. Um, And I think one of the other most interesting veins from WPATH was just the the framing around embodiment goals kind of taking off over the framing around gender dysphoria. So what what do you mean
3: by uh, embodiment goals?
4: Yeah, what they mean by that is they want to shift the focus from the patient's distress and also from kind of the diagnosis of gender dysphoria to the patient's kind of objectives for how they would like to change their body. And the way that they would talk about it is like, you know, embodiment goals, these are something that might shift over time, but also like it's imperative that you help a patient realize whatever their embodiment goals are right now. And so there was a presenter who was talking about, you know, maybe a patient wants more boobs or less boobs or no boobs, or maybe if they want them later, they could get them again. There was just this incredible casualness to the way that they were talking about kind of customizing the human body and you could see this like the justification of medical diagnosis and distress kind of falling away in favor mm. of what i would describe as a much more transhuman framing of like how can we think about the human body in terms of what enhancement technologies can provide yep. and how can we conceptualize the human body in its natural intact state as being this disease state that doctors have a responsibility to modify according to the patient's whims, with the acknowledgement that these are these can be whims that they can be shifting, and that d- doesn't mean that you shouldn't make a
3: permanent intervention. So you've written about the, the dangers of mm-hmm. um, just a few articles about the dangers of um, uh, gender-affirming care. Well, after going to the the WPATH conference you know, are there just some, you know, some few little statements you could say about it or is it just feels like there's too many questions and that you're still kind of battling with on all of this or some impressions, maybe that would be the word.
4: I would say the way that I've been able to make sense of gender affirming care and how affirmative clinicians understand what they're doing is that affirmative clinicians feel an intense loyalty to a patient's kind of transgender alter. And that this is not the same thing as feeling an intense loyalty for like the actually existing physical patient who's sitting in front of them. And it can really be the opposite. That this belief in the transgender altar it's a belief that allows a doctor to do basically unlimited harm to a patient in the belief that they're doing good. And that the way that affirmative care works is that you basically A clinician will lose sight of who the patient is almost immediately because once trans comes up, once a kid says I'm trans, it's like nothing else matters. Not if they have other mental health comorbidities, not, it doesn't matter what's in their biography, if they have a history of sexual trauma or bullying. um, It doesn't matter if they're probably just gay, and it doesn't matter what age or stage they're at. And so as soon as a kid comes out as trans, the doctor will lose sight of sex. They'll call girls boys. They're still girls. They will conceptualize a patient as wrongly sexed as being in need of reconstructive relief. And that's a much easier sell for doctors to see that as within their brief than if they were to acknowledge it as like an extreme cosmetic or body modification intervention. If you listen to a lot of affirmative clinicians, you will notice that they really, really love to talk about people, no matter the age of the people that the patients they are talking about. So Joanne Allison Kennedy will mention something about a three-year-old and kind of a three-year-old's gender expression. And a couple of sentences later, she will say, people know who they are. Because if she said, toddlers know who they are, everybody would say, they're toddlers. (laughs) And the other thing that I wanted to mention is that I think that there's this heavy reliance on bad analogies within gender-affirming care that also really kind of lubricate the path for for gender-affirming clinicians to not see what they're doing. And so they will constantly compare gender-affirming care to insulin, providing insulin to a diabetic. Of course, diabetes is an objective physical condition that you can measure, and you can measure how well the treatment is working, and it's actually life-threatening if it's not treated. And they will also compare, especially when they're talking about kids and issues like the unknowns of puberty blockers and their effects on brain development and their effects on fertility, they will compare these patients to patients with cancer. Except, of course, these kids don't have cancer.
0: We've got Shannon Thrace from USA. Um, She's a creative nonfiction writer, an IT professional, who's passionate about philosophy, ethics, unplugging and seeing the world. You can learn more by subscribing to Shannon's Substack, which we'll put in the chat. And she's got a memoir, 18 months, on the unraveling of her 15 year relationship when her husband came out as a uh, transgender, and it's now available on Amazon. Um, so thank you so much, Shannon. And the title of your talk is Shannon Thrace, a trans widow speaks.
5: I'm Shannon Thrace. I'm here to talk about my marriage and divorce to a male born person who announced that he was transgender. Um, as Joe mentioned, I've written a book. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but before I get into my story, I just wanted to briefly, touch on why I speak about this, and I think it's for a couple of reasons. One is that with um, with the transgender identities on the rise, um, the issues in the news, all, all the things going on, um, I find that the narrative often promoted is not the one that I witnessed, and so a lot of things about my story just really don't fit the dominant narrative. They aren't, I, what I watched was um not what people say happens and so i i want to tell that story i want to talk about um how my ex-husband jamie seemed to acquire gender dysphoria rather than being born with it or having it for a really long time um and and how transition seemed to make jamie more unhappy instead of happier and then another reason why i want to speak is because i really um believe that women have the right to tell our stories. And I hear from a lot of other trans widows who say they're having a very hard time talking about this or getting a platform for it or not getting shut down. And I think it's a, it's an important story. Um, just like any other story by any woman, I think women have the right to speak. We have the right to tell our stories and that's, um, that's something I believe. So I'll start with me uh, just a little bit of background about me because I think it's relevant to the story. So I'm a liberal. Um, I have had same sex relationships uh, both before and after my marriage to my ex-husband, Jamie. I actually came out to my mom at the age of 11, told her I thought I was gay. Um, That didn't go over very well. I struggled with with that for a while. But I did come to terms with that in my adulthood, and by the time I met Jamie, I had, um, I was very open-minded, um, very liberal, very uh, you know pro pro LGBTQ. Um, I had gone through a polyamorous phase. I had had a lot of experience, a lot of uh, interesting sexual experience, and so. When Jamie uh, told me that he was transgender, I did not have any political agenda or feminist agenda. I was um, ready to lean into that. So that's where I was at the time that this occurred. Um, So Jamie and I met um, in kind of an atmosphere of partying. He was actually involved with someone else. I was identifying as a lesbian, we were flirting, um, but I really didn't think it would go anywhere. Um, And and so that's how it started. Um, We had some physical attraction, we had some fun. uh, And that slowly turned into a real relationship. And then, um, of course, we got married. Um, And where my story begins, Jamie and I had been together for 14 years, and we had actually settled into a really cozy, really lovely, uh, quiet life we had kind of gotten through our partying phase. We had lived in the city, so we were kind of urbane type people, but we had also moved to the country to attempt a homestead um, and just to have sort of a quieter life. So we we did a lot of gardening. We did a lot of cooking. We drank lemonade on the porch. We watched the cows in the neighboring farm. Um, It was a quiet life. It was a happy life. I had no idea um, that, that anything could change or, or could go really seriously awry, or, uh, nor did I have any idea that Jamie had any issues with gender. Um, he was actually pretty masculine. He had a, a really large beard. Um, he enjoyed, uh, backpacking, video games, very typical male interests. Uh, you know, wasn't beyond, uh, it wasn't above bragging and, you know, uh, drinking beer and and do you know, going out with the boys and, and all those sorts of things that men do. So as a matter of fact, once he said, um, "I can't wait to become an old man." And I kind of chuckled at that and asked him what he meant. And he said, "There's a grace in growing old, and uh, it's a reprieve from expectations. And then he said that he wanted to play Santa at the mall. So he he very much seemed uh, settled in to a male identity. So then one fateful evening, um, as I said, 14 years in, Jamie told me that he wanted to look at pornography. And we looked at pornography together, and he directed our search toward transsexual porn. And just as an aside here, um, I'm aware of uh, the problematic nature of pornography. Um, The sex trafficking, you know, I'm not in favor of it at the time. I had not really thought about it very deeply. Um, I'm human, you know, it was something I did. And I think it's important to tell the truth about that because I think it plays a role in Jamie's identity formation. So I don't wanna gloss that over, um, but I also don't wanna deny my participation in that at the time. Um, after after this incident uh, of looking at the transsexual porn, Jamie, uh, Wanted to cross dress and I gave him a makeover that night. Um, we had sex. Uh, and then he wanted to cross dress the next day and, and he wanted to make it a thing. Now, I was, um, as I said, we both identified as feminists. I was unaware of any divisions within the feminist movement at the time. Um, my thought was and still is that people can wear whatever they want uh, women's clothes don't belong to women. Femininity is a social construction. If he wants to wear a dress, I really don't care. Um, so that's how I felt about it at the time. And, and that's how he felt about it too. And, and he actually started a blog, um, called outside the binary in which he kind of bragged that he enjoyed cross-dressing as a means of self-expression. He wasn't a woman. He, uh, admitted male privilege Um, And really under no dress whatsoever, he launched this blog and and kind of produced these manifestos defending cross-dressing and and, uh, um, kind of uh, also denying uh, that he might be a woman in any way because he'd heard those sorts of arguments out in the world. And uh, even saying, you know, that he he wasn't sure that was a good way to go. So that's where he was. for quite a while for several months um and then uh one evening while we were out uh dining at a restaurant somebody told jamie hey um i just realized that you look like brad pitt and and jamie started to cry and um the conversation that we had as a result of that moment um revealed that jamie had acquired gender dysphoria And then he had started to think of himself as a woman. He had started to believe that he was passing, which was actually really odd because uh, during those first months, he was dressing rather androgynously. Sometimes he'd wear a woman's shirt, maybe with some, you know, uh, bell sleeves or roughly neckline or something like that. But he'd still wear jeans and like high top chucks and things like that. So it really came as a surprise to me that he was feeling that way. And it seemed like maybe it even came as a surprise to him. Um and shortly after this, um Jamie said he was transgender. Um he, he came out to his friends and family, and uh, immediately, I mean overnight, he plunged into a misery uh that was just remarkable. He cried every single night from from the moment of the the reveal. Um in our life really, really took a downturn. Um, And two things, I think, were especially affected. I mean, everything was affected, but two things really, really were suffering at that point. And one of them was sex. And that was because Jamie had gender dysphoria now, did not like to think of himself as a man, did not like to acknowledge his body parts. And so, as you might imagine, um, it was difficult to be in the moment physically with someone who needs to play all these head games, um, and, and to deny what he is. And, uh, so many things would trigger it. And, uh, there was a lot of pretending and, and so forth. Um, also because of self-absorption on his part, he seemed to be thinking about how he looked and how he should dress and, um, what he looked like sexually. And he was interested in, in doing some sexual things that I was willing to role play for him uh, on occasion, but I didn't want these things taking over our sex life and replacing real skin to skin contact and honesty and intimacy and and things like that. And then um, another part of that was that he got laser surgery. He started to dress a lot more, um, more ridiculously really uh, just to to wear much more femi things that, I wouldn't have even been attracted to had they been on a woman, um, and so his presentation started to turn me off too. And so uh, we were both we were both struggling. He was struggling because of gender dysphoria. I was struggling because I wasn't interested in this presentation that he had put on. and And this is why I like to mention um, my past because um, a lot of people will say, "Well, you know, uh, if you're if you're a lesbian or you're bisexual, you shouldn't have any trouble here because now you're." your husband's a woman well you know he wasn't a woman right and and so having sex with a man who's cross-dressed or who's acting is not the same thing as having sex with a woman and then the other thing that really suffered was our communication and that suffered because he had started to take on a very practiced fake persona and i think that's interesting because the story we're given is that these people have uh, are, are naturally uh, a man is naturally more feminine or a woman is naturally more masculine and that they're just uh, revealing their true authentic selves, right? They're being what they always were anyway. Um, If that's the case, why did he need to practice? You know, why did he need to raise his voice uh, to a higher octave just so he could sound a little more feminine? You know, why did he need to uh, take on wrist gestures that he thought, that he thought looked feminine and, and so he was doing a lot of of of, of a practiced persona. Um he was parroting lines from things he'd heard online, um, which made our conversations difficult because I wasn't following these same conversations. So um I couldn't just have a, a give and take conversation with him anymore. He would say something that uh, just didn't make sense. Um, he was inventing persecution. He was saying that various people had been mean to him, that they had been transphobic, um, or that they had hassled him. And in some of these situations, I was there during the moment that he that he reframed later as an incident of harassment, and I was having been there knew that that these things didn't happen, and so. He was lying. He was um, parroting what turned out to be lines from activism circles, which I didn't know at the time. Um, And and it became very difficult for us to communicate. The other thing that started to happen was this this nightly crying. It it didn't cease. And Jamie started to have a lot of meltdowns at home. Um, He had meltdowns about how he looked about how he thought someone was treating him, about how he thought someone was perceiving him. Um, one of the things he worried about was, did he look gay? Which, which really bothered me, right? Because that sounds kind of homophobic. It's like, well, you know, uh, why is that a bad thing, right? Um, so Jamie, Jamie was having a lot of depression, a lot of misery, a lot of drama, a lot of meltdowns, and and he ended up going to a therapist who prescribed him antidepressants, but who also said that she thought that it would be quote fun to transition him. And she said that on his very first vi- visit. Um so, you know, I have to wonder if if she had some influence there. Jamie also dropped out of housework, hobbies, work, um, just about everything. Um and so we we lived for several months in this in this real turmoil and stress and it started to really get to me. And so I took a a solo camping trip so that I could think I did some writing and I did some thinking and I did some soul searching and I, um, I came out of that realizing that I needed to get a divorce. Um, it, it had been months with no change. Uh, Jamie wasn't willing to be honest at home. That was really one of the main things. Um, and so I, I came out of that trip realizing most of all that I could not compromise my own integrity. And so I, I realized uh, that no matter what else might change, you know, even if Jamie got happier or, or whatever else, or, or started doing more housework or, or these sorts of things that I wasn't willing to lie Um, and Jamie had stopped saying that he was presenting as a woman and started saying that he was literally a woman. And I wasn't allowed or um it wasn't okay if I said, no, you're presenting as a woman, but you're you're not literally a woman. Um I had used pronouns to be polite. I had started to think of them as uh contributing to the problem, you know. Um, and and so I became conflicted about that too the other thing that I decided during that camp camping trip is that I just will not sacrifice myself. Um, I did not want to live with this endless self-absorption, um, this inability to just move forward with a normal life. You know, I wanted to have good times. I wanted to travel. I wanted to live well to me. That's not compatible with this kind of constant rumination and, uh, you know, seeking persecution and looking for trouble and, um, just, just endless, um, really rumination on identity. Um, it's not a way I wanted to live. And so I initiated a divorce and after the divorce, I really picked up my life. I went to grad school. I I did some traveling and, um, um, I, I made a good life for myself. So it was, it was a good thing that I left. Um, it was definitely a positive move in the end. Um, as I said, I have written a book on this, it's called 18 months it's available on Amazon. Um, but the thing I really, I think want to leave people with, um, especially women is, is just that, um, I, I didn't want to compromise myself. I didn't want to compromise my integrity, my honesty, um, and I don't want anyone else to have to do that either. And so I, I get letters from women who are in the same situation asking me for advice. And, you know, if the question is, how do you get this to stop? Or how do you, um, you know, change their mind? I, I don't know the answer to that. The only thing I can say is that I want women to think about what do you want to live with? What do you want for yourself? What, you know, feels honest, what feels right? And that's, what I want for women. That's what I wanted for myself. And that's what I want for every woman. So thank you very much for letting me speak.